You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. It's Tuesday, May 19, 2020, just after market close in New York. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington. Joining me is going to be Ed Harrison from Washington, D.C. But first, for the latest market news, let's go to Jack Farley. Thanks, Ash. Yesterday, we discussed PNC Financial's sale of its massive stake in BlackRock. Today, I want to look at that deal in greater depth and explore why it's so significant within the banking world. The deal, which totaled just over $14 billion, is the largest equity offering since Alibaba's $25 billion offering in 2014. But that's not the reason that this deal turned heads, nor is it about the $140 million in fees or the $1.1 billion buyback that BlackRock managed to do. Nor is it even about the fact that PNC Financial sold its BlackRock shares at a 7% discount. No, the reason this deal is sending shockwaves throughout the banking world is that this sale leaves PNC extremely well capitalized at a time when banks, particularly regional banks, are facing perhaps the greatest insolvency crisis in their history. In addition to booking a $5 billion gain on the sale after taxes, the deal raises PNC's common equity tier ratio from 9.4% to 11.4%, above many of its peers. PNC Financial CEO Bill Demchek told the Financial Times that the purpose of the sale was explicitly to shore up the balance sheet in these trying times, and that PNC specifically has its eyes on buying another bank, his exact words being that they wanted to play offense. Since the sale, analysts have been cooing about PNC's improved financial health and have been finding a lot more to admire on its balance sheet than its newly found cash buffer. For one, PNC seems less exposed to the sectors that have been most affected by COVID than its competitors. The bank has a very low percentage of impacted loans, or loans in areas such as hospitality, energy, retail, and food services, just 7% compared to the median 11% that Bloomberg Intelligence found when comparing it to other regional banks. Accordingly, PNC Financial has a very low rate of loan modification, which is when banks lower interest rates or extend deferrals in order to ensure payment. Looking at other metrics, the reserve levels relative to stress test losses are nothing to scoff at. And while PNC's charge-offs are average, more importantly, they're narrow. And this range boundedness can be very attractive at a time when investors are putting a significant discount on uncertainty. The perceived strength of PNC's balance sheet could be one reason its debt is trading at a premium to its competitors. The equity layer, eh, not so much. It's done decently well, but trough to peak recovery, we're not seeing as wide of a dispersion as we see in credit. One reason this could be is that the bond market reflects investors' anxieties about the balance sheet, while the stock market reflects their hope about the income statement. Equities, after all, are an anticipatory asset, whereas in fixed income, it's all about getting paid. So that could explain the discrepancy we see between the bond market and the stock market. 
I hope that sheds some light on why PNC Financial was the only stock that Warren Buffett went net long on in Q1. I think the reason that this sale is so significant is that it shows the importance of having a capital buffer. If cash is king, this deal was its coronation. And with that, let's go to Mr. Credit Write-Down himself, our managing editor, Ed Harrison, with senior editor, Ash Bennington. Gentlemen, back to you. Thanks, Jack. Welcome, Ed. Good to talk to you, Ash. Ed, let me throw something out to you. Bank of America just did a survey of 223 fund managers conducted the week ending May 14th. 10% said they were expecting a V-shaped recovery. 75% said they were expecting a prolonged U or W-shaped recovery. 25% of those fund managers think we're in a new bull market. 68% think this is a bear market rally. Yeah, it it, to, it tells you that uh, we're fighting this uh, this rally all the way up. I mean, because people they, they're not believing, but you know, when the money's coming in, when people are piling into the uh, uh, to the algos, the, the algos are saying go higher. When you're putting into uh, into uh, passive investment, that's what happens, ir irrespective of what you might think. To me, it points to downside risk, obviously. And you know, this is what we saw yesterday when. The day started, uh, as we were saying, the bank stocks in Europe were at all-time lows, uh, uh, a recent all-time lows on a price-to-book ratio level in Europe. But then we obviously we had the virus uh, trial that was positive news. We had the Franco-German pact that was positive news, and somehow people spun the Jerome Powell speech at. Uh, 60 Minutes is positive news, and we were off to the races. But interestingly, uh, because we were talking about this earlier, your level for the uh, retracement, the 61.8 retracement, is we're actually just below that. I was looking at a 29.20 level on the S&P, and we closed today just above that level. Yeah, 29.22. Uh, we're using uh, 33.93, uh, February 19, intraday high as the high. Uh, and for the low, we're using the intraday low set 23 March 2020. I think there's a police car passing by my building right now. So apologies for the noise. You know, let me uh, tell you how I'm thinking about this. Uh, just uh, let's uh, let's take the lens out a little bit and go back. I'm thinking that more than anything else, the rally in risk assets has been driven by monetary and, and fiscal policy. So, I mean, as I said, just yesterday, we saw that in display with the, the Fed. We saw that with the Franco-German alliance in particular. Now, the initial policy response in March uh, as we headed into lockdown was because we had a liquidity crisis. That's what Raul called the first uh, segment of this particular crisis. If you look at it in three phases, once that was under control, policymakers then moved on and they said that we're going to support households, we're going to support businesses as we continued into the lockdown. But even though they've done that, you know, this has been the most severe economic hit to the global economy since the Great Depression. And so while the policy response has been overwhelming, even greater than what we saw in the great financial crisis, it still hasn't mitigated, you know, pretty horrendous outcomes. We're going to look at 20 to 30 percent annualized uh, declines in GDP growth in North America and in Europe. Uh, for Q2, but then we're already out of the lockdown. So we could end up with the shortest uh, uh, recession, the shortest and sharpest recession on record as a result of this. And then we're going to get a snapback. So 
that when you talk about the Bank of America, uh, what do people expect? Uh, you know, I think when they talk about the U, yes, there will be a snapback, but that snap will only get you so far. It's it's not going to go up to 100 percent. It's going to get you to 85, 90, and then you got to make up the rest over a longer period of time. So that's where you get the U or the W uh, type of outcome. And I think that that's where the risk is for uh, for equities, for junk bonds. So potentially a J-shaped recovery. Yeah. So it's it's not, you know, or uh, uh, people talk about the check mark or they talk about the V with a little, the square root or whatever. But the, the whole concept is, is that just because uh, you, you have a snapback rally doesn't mean you snap back to 100%. It's almost impossible to think that you could have a 25% unemployment level, which we're going to get, and then you're going to get back to that. Uh, w one other point that I would make, because you know I was writing about this this morning, credit write downs taking a, a you know a fuller view. When you look at how things have passed over the near term, okay, I, I was looking in early March. In er in early March, I uh, uh, toward mid March, I I said this this is what I wrote. I wrote the following: If you take the Chinese timeline as a best case outcome, front to back would be the 15th of May, 2020, when the US economy slowly reemerges. So if you compare the lockdown, the US is just about two months behind China, and that would also point to mid-May as the reemergence date from the epidemic. That's two months of excruciating economic pain followed by recovery. Is that a recession? Probably yes. Uh, look at the Chinese data. China's industrial output contracted at the sharpest pace in 30 years in the first two months of the year. Auto sales plunged 79% in February, exports fell 17%. So that's exactly what we've gotten in the United States. Those are exactly the timeframes that we're looking at actually a little bit earlier than we expected. So the market is reacting to that, that over the near term. They're not looking at the longer term picture, which is where we get the uh, potential negativity on the viral side and also the potential um, you know, stagnation in the economy as well. Yeah, and to add one new data point to that, uh, housing starts this morning fell 30% on a seasonally adjusted basis and 29.7% on a seasonal year-over-year uh, -year basis. Uh, and uh, housing down starts down, not surprisingly, in all four U.S. regions. Yeah. And, you know, going back to what I was talking about back in March, uh, before the Fed uh, came in, I said, you know, 40% down for a, a recession, you know, a strong recession is what you should expect. We ended up getting to 35% before the Fed swooped in and just flooded the economy with liquidity, even as Jay Powell said on 60 Minutes on Sunday. Uh, if we, if they hadn't have done that, maybe we would have gotten to 60% down. But that doesn't mean that we can't retest the lows. Even though we've had the 61.8% retracement, really what the Fed has done at this point is they've taken worst case scenarios off the table. And if you think about it going forward, uh, going from the 25% unemployment level up to, say, 10%, you, you have to think to yourself, uh, not only today, but into the foreseeable future, we're going to have to continue to see the policy response, continue to see the fiscal deficits in order to get us over the line on a consistent basis uh, to pull us through without a double dip type of recession. Think about what happened in the, uh, the Great Depression, 1936-37. 
the Fed took its, its uh, you know, they, they took back the stimulus. We had a uh, tax raise and then immediately, bang, you had another recession. And it was a very severe recession. And that's what we are. That's sort of where we are today. So we really don't know where we are. It's very much dependent on the policy response going forward. So there's a lot of uncertainty about where the economy will be, both on the policy response side and also on the, the viral side, how much of a second or third wave we'll get. Yeah, so you have been, uh, as I often say, spot on on your forecast for mid-May uh, reopening. I guess the question is, when you look at those two things and you weigh the balance of probabilities, I think I said in a previous episode that it's kind of like the uh, immovable object meeting the unstoppable force with effectively unlimited monetary policy, large-scale fiscal stimulus, and yet a series of unknowns about the virus that, uh, you know, I guess question not whether the lockdown is going to, going to be lifted, because clearly that clearly is in, in progress right now. But the question is, how effective will it be? To what extent will we be able to reopen? And to what extent will that have the uh, desired impact of moving the real economy closer to full capacity? You know, uh, even to get away from the uh, the full capacity part of the economy, just from a, a pure uh, market's internal perspective, I'm thinking about uh, the, the the virus and uh, some of the news flow that I've seen out of Latin America is uh, really troubling. Because when you think about what happened in uh, North America and the Northern Hemisphere during our winter time, that's when the virus was virulent. Now, actually, what we're seeing is, is we're seeing the case count in Latin America uh, hot up in, in, a, in a significant way. It's not just Brazil, but we're talking about places like Chile. Uh, we're talking about places like Ecuador. So really, this virus is still circulating in a negative way. Uh, well, I haven't heard a lot about it really mushrooming in Africa. But what it means is, is that you know, the devastation's not over, and it could boomerang back. Uh, to the north, uh, particularly in the fall. So it, it's really hard to talk about what the economic outcomes are going to be until we actually know what's going to happen uh, from, the, from the virus perspective. The, the only thing I think, uh, from my perspective, is that the, the first down leg that we've had of this economic uh, um, outcome has been so dramatic that I really think uh, you'd have to see a dramatic rise in cases to see another full sort of lockdown like we saw already. I think the the lockdowns of that nature are over. You know, we've ramped up our testing ability and we know what the economic damage is. It's probably not coming back uh, in that draconian form ever again. Yeah, and I think you've hit on the key uncertainties there, which is, uh, you know, number one, the seasonality. Uh, and number two is the the potential for uh, for a second leg of the virus. We just don't know, and we're not going to know. And frankly, uh, you know, all the finance and economics guys in the world can speculate about it, but the reality is, until the scenario starts to play out, it's effectively uh, impossible to forecast, right? Right. And so, you know, I, I, there are two two or three things that I'm thinking about going forward. Uh, one is the uncertainty, which we don't know about. A lot of that has to do with the virus. And as I said before, the other is the uncertainty that has to do with the policy response. So when you're looking at it from an investment perspective, I think that's where the, the questions are. How much risk are you willing to take? You know, for instance, if you're looking at a pairs trade, relative value, however you express it 
whether through derivatives, whether you do it through CDS or buying outright. Let's look at, say, government bonds in Europe as an example in terms of convergence. Because if you look at the debt profiles in Europe, what you would see is, is, is that because of the way the Eurozone is constructed, you have the euros uh, that you can put to any different country's government bonds. If you're an Italian, you could go and invest in Germany rather than your own government's bond. So there's an extra bid that's going to the likes of Germany and the Netherlands. That gets unwound in times like this, and there's a convergence that's there. The question is, is once this uh, episode is over, who's going to benefit the most from the convergence, or is there going to be a continued decoupling in, say, uh, Greece and Italy in particular? My view is, is, is that the, if you really are playing a risky game, if you really you know, want to go at the risk curve, you can do a Paris trade of Germany and the Netherlands versus, say, Greece and Italy. But Spain is a much better bet because they've sold off, but I believe that their convergence will last they will continue to converge through. And as uh, you know, the Eurozone heals, they'll be one of the beneficiaries, both from an economic perspective, from a, a, a tourism perspective, and from a budgetary perspective. You know, I'm so fascinated by that. And, and, and I'm curious, when you, when you bet the convergence play, is that because you expect uh, the actual economic uh, activity to converge? Or is that effectively a bet on increased uh, unification in terms of uh, things like uh, fiscal share burden sharing uh, within the eurozone I think it's more of a bet of re of uh, redenomination risk as expressed in you know uh, credit default swaps or in uh, in government bond spreads a perfect example of that I would say is Ireland uh, no one talks about Ireland these days. You know, they've done fairly middling in terms of their policy, uh, in terms of their coronavirus response, in terms of their death rates. Uh, it, you know, no one talks about their budget deficits. No one talks about their yield. But if you remember in 2008, it wasn't Italy that was the sick child. They weren't the one that got the bailout. It was Portugal, Ireland, Greece, and Spain that were in the hot seat. But then at some point in time, everyone stopped talking about Ireland. Why? Because it reconverged completely. It, 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 it was taken off the table as a part of the periphery. So what I'm saying is, is, I think if you want to play the Paris trade and you're looking to mitigate downside risk, Spain would be the equivalent of Ireland in this particular scenario, much more so than, say, Portugal, uh, and certainly more so than Italy or, or Greece. Yeah, I do remember it very clearly. They were referred to uh, by the somewhat unpolitically correct name, the pigs at the time. For their, uh... Right. And, and in that case, it was Ireland replacing Italy in terms of the eye. And yes. now Italy is, is in Ireland's position in, in, that, uh, in that scenario. So what's the risk on the Spanish convergence trade? I think the risk is that uh, it flares up again, uh, that... Uh, 120% uh, government debt to GDP is too high. And I don't think that that's a, 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 an actual risk. I think that you know the Spanish economy is more dynamic uh, at this point within the Eurozone than the Italian economy. They have hit 98%, over 98% uh, uh, government debt to GDP. They can go up to 120% uh, by the time this is all over, let's say by the end of 2021. And that's lower than Italy was when it, it got into uh, the crisis to begin with. So those are levels that are completely sustainable, 
especially if the economy is able to uh, recover from the coronavirus. So I think that when you think about convergence, really what you're saying is, is, is that Spain is now a part of the core in the exact same way that Ireland was a part of the core and that it was just because of the coronavirus that its bonds sold off. Right. So liquidity, uh, not solvency, perhaps to uh, continue the metaphor. You know, I'm also curious uh, to hear what the flip side of that is, is why you think uh, Italy, for example, is such a great risk. I remember in 2008, the cliche about Italy was uh, too big to fail, but also too big to save. Is that still the case? Yeah, that's the that's the problem there. You know, if you look at the BTP market, uh, it's the largest in uh, in Europe. They have the largest government bond market in Europe, larger than Germany because of their legacy debt. They're going to end this uh, with 180% debt to GDP. Those are levels at which Greece was considered uh, insolvent and uh, was forced into taking a haircut. So what do you do in that situation in a peacetime? Uh, we're, we're at war with the virus now, but when we go to peacetime, when all of the death rates are, are gone, when, we're, when we've gone through this checkmark, uh, you know, snapback rally, and we're in that part where we're sort of like, okay, yeah, now we're trying to uh, to grind it out. You, you have a problem, okay? The, the Germans blink to a certain degree, if you will, in terms of debt mutualization, but they're not, uh, th those aren't euro bonds that they're taking on. There aren't gonna be euro bonds unless uh, there's, uh, you know, re-denomination risk that's on the table. So Italy, Italy will always be a problem because they are too big to bail and they're also too big to fail. Right. So what's your base case for the outlook then for Italy? So my base case is a continued stagnation, you know, increase of uh, debt to GDP towards 180 percent and uh, no growth over uh, the 2000 and uh, late 2020 to 21 period. So basically they'll be in, in, in a, a, a painful situation come the end of 2021. And by that period of time, I would think that the virus will either be uh, stabilized to to where you know uh, it's become a daily part of the life that we can control, or it will have gone away uh, to a large extent, uh, and people will start to think about we need to get these budgets down. You know, you guys can't have four percent uh, deficits. You need to have one percent deficits. You need to have uh, you know, uh, deficit surpluses, actually, government surpluses on a, uh, a, a um, you know, primary budget basis. And so I think that that's really we're going to get into problems. But it sounds as though uh, that you're not sort of catastrophically bearish. It sounds like a, a blunder through scenario, get to a point where there's a vaccine or better treatment and uh, the virus becomes more survivable. And then the uh, Italians and uh, and uh, Brussels try to figure out some mechanism or pathway to get them toward greater sustainability. Well, no, I mean, that's when you get to the Brexit scenario, right? I mean, David Cameron, he went to the EU. He said, look, uh, th this is what I need uh, in order to make sure that uh, uh, we're on the right path. He didn't get what he wanted. So he went back and he said, now I'm going to do the referendum. He did the referendum, he lost the referendum, and now the, e the EU has uh, uh, taken split from the UK. So that's where we will be. We'll be you know, at that particular juncture in time. 
you know, it will be the, the coming to Jesus moment for the EU with regard to ETAL exit. <laughs> so you buried the lead a little there, and it was blundered through until it fails terribly. Well, no, I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to fail, but, you know, it will be the moment of truth for the for the Eurozone, you know, right. because once redenomination risk is on the table, you know, uh, that that's a significant event. Because remember, if Italy, see, think about it in terms of the dynamics of it all. If Italy is in the is in the Eurozone, that's great in terms of keeping the euro weak. But if Italy leaves the Eurozone, then suddenly it becomes less weak. Everyone's concerned about Germany in that case, or say the Netherlands. But what about France? What about Spain? What right. about those countries when they're now in a currency union in which suddenly the currency is appreciating by 10, 15, who knows, 20 percent? That's going to be very painful for those countries. That's Those are dynamics that they're going to be thinking about, and that's going to drive their calculus in terms of whether they're going to accept debt mutualization. And then the question becomes not just whether the Italians leave, whether the Germans leave, right? There are all sorts of scenarios that you can come up with as a result of that. So it's a very unstable situation. And uh, ultimately, you know, the way that I would play it is in terms of Spanish convergence towards Germany rather than Italian convergence or Greek convergence towards Germany. So, so just to clarify, when you talk about redenomination, you're talking about redenomination of the euro itself into legacy currencies uh, for countries that exit, not simply a haircut or redenomination of debt. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm talking about, uh, you know, Greece didn't redenominate, but Italy, uh, you know, when you say redenomination risk, you mean that suddenly now uh, we're using lira or we're using these scripts that will soon convert to lira. Uh, you know, like their government IOUs circulating around in 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 uh, Italy that they could suddenly convert to legal tender, and then suddenly you're off to the races towards a second currency, a parallel currency in uh, in Italy. Right. So for for the purposes of simplicity, redenomination is tantamount to an exit from the eurozone. Right. Yeah. And you know, the easiest way to do that, obviously, is is to create a parallel currency. Uh, that is uh, that you can pay taxes with. As soon as you're able to pay taxes and you're able to go and exchange it, you know, as a legal tender, it's effectively, uh, you know, a, a script that is a parallel currency in the same way that dollars are a parallel currency in certain countries in Latin America. Right. Um, so, Ed, uh, as we transition back to the U.S., uh, what are you looking at today? Uh, in the context uh, domestically? So in the U.S., some of the things that I'm looking at are uh, uh, what I would call um, underperformance or overperformance relative to uh, where we've snapped back to in various sectors. So, you know, what I was writing earlier today, I was saying, uh, while the, the coronavirus is on the loose, anything that puts you in close proximity to dozens even hundreds or ten thousands of strangers for an extended period of time is like playing Russian roulette. So if the virus sticks around for the long term, which I think it will, those activities will be shunned en masse. And that's not a good outcome for the companies in those sectors. And so then you have to ask yourself, have those sectors been beaten down enough? Just because they've been beaten down, does it really mean that there's any value there? No, not necessarily. We're talking about airlines, we're talking about leisure. We're talking about tourism, casinos, rental cars, amusement parks, live events. Uh, 
all of all of the companies that are leveraged to those particular sectors, some of them could go to zero. Their equity is worthless. And then, of course, from a policy response perspective, you have to ask yourself, is there going to be a bailout? And is that bailout going to be enough? Uh, those, those are the kinds of questions that, that we're now looking at uh, going forward. So there, there's a lot of uncertainty in those sectors in particular, even if uh, you're able to get massive amounts of stimulus that continue the rally in shares, those sectors will underperform in my view. Yeah, you did a sector by sector breakdown in uh, this morning's uh, credit write downs. Uh, so I was already read in. Yes. So, uh, you know, one other sector, there are two other sectors I would mention in this. Uh, uh, one is oil, the other is banks. And the reason I mentioned oil is because, you know, when we talk about the losers, oil was one of the losers during the lockdown. But once lockdowns released, is oil going to be a lockdown? I know there's a glut of storage and there probably will continue to be a glut of storage. Uh, at least during the initial phases of the reopening. But it could be that we are seeing greater energy inefficient modes of transportation going forward because people want to be in their own little bubble. They want to use their cars, their SUVs to get around. It, maybe maybe for uh, the shale companies, that's a bad scenario because they're just too leveraged. But maybe that's a good scenario for the likes of ExxonMobil and Chevron because they have the wherewithal to withstand uh, the, the, the downturn. And once you shake out the, the, the minnows, the ones who had overextended balance sheets, it's actually good for the oil majors. So that's the one sector I was thinking about in that regard. And I'm going to quote you here on banks because I thought this was a, a really trenchant way of framing it. So one last sector here, the banks. I saw that bank shares in Europe were trading at levels uh, that were price to book value was even lower than during the great financial crisis. I don't have a strong view on what this means yet, but just because something is cheap doesn't mean it represents value. Exactly. And so I'm very concerned about European bank shares. And I think that the difference between a depression with a small d, that is a, a depression, meaning you have a 25% unemployment level, you snap back to 80% and then you, you know, slowly emerge over a 10-year period and a great depression is uh, the infection of the financial sector. You know, are these companies, when, when Jack was talking about PNC, you know, uh, getting their balance sheet sorted out, that's a great thing, you know, because that means PNC is in a much better position. You, American banks are much better positioned to withstand uh, capital write downs than European banks. I'm very concerned that uh, Europe is going to be in big trouble on that score. And if the banks are infected, then, you know, Italy in particular, that's going to be a problem, given the outlook that I was giving earlier. So I think for me, banks are the sector to watch in terms of is this a sustainable rally over the longer term? Yeah. And Italy, once again, uh, in Europe at the core uh, of, uh, well, core is perhaps not the best term. I mean, the core of uh, risk, I suppose, would be the way. Yes. Right. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I would add one note. Uh, my former employer, Rogers, former employer, Deutsche Bank, is, is always at the center of a lot of these things. Uh, the, Deutsche Bank, if they go under or if they need a bailout, it could work to the benefit of the Italian banks, because ultimately uh, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. And so 
uh, the Italians should hope that Deutsche Bank gets into trouble because then it would make the Germans a lot more amenable to some uh, government support for the banking sector. Uh, you know, a bad bank, a European-wide bad bank that doesn't uh, require any sort of debt on the 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 um, the state balance sheet level. Great, that's that's a great solution. Uh, if Deutsche Bank drives that solution then all the better for the Italians, all the better for a lack of redenomination risk going forward. It's so interesting, Ed. That's such a, a weird sort of perverse economic logic, right? So it's better that for Italy, uh, if Deutsche Bank fails, because clearly Deutsche Bank, national champion uh, of Germany, isn't going to be allowed to go under. So actually more instability, uh, more uh, credit write-downs, better inside the Eurozone from the perspective of the Italians. Oh yeah, and 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 I would add that if you looked at Deutsche Bank's uh, Q1 earnings report, they did not do a whole lot of write downs, so they're under provisioned relative to what you know is coming going forward. So Q2 will be very interesting in terms of what happens to uh, Deutsche Bank and uh, the the amount of uh, loan loss reserves that they're taking. Ed, always a pleasure, but especially on European banking issues. It was great talking to you, and I hope that uh, you can follow up with some of that with Roger. I don't know what you're thinking about with Roger, but I'm always very interested to hear what he has to say, especially in terms of the currency side of things. Yes, Roger's always insightful on currencies, and I'd also like to uh, hear him pick up on the banking theme. Ed, thanks for joining us. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.